0: Hello and welcome to At Any Rate Podcast by J.P. Morgan. I'm Mira Chandan from the FX strategy team. And today I'm joined by Rindan Sandilya in FX strategy and Jay Barry from uh, the US rate strategy team. So we've had pretty stunning reversals in FX on the dollar and of course also um, in the US rates market. Uh, within the US, um, I would say that, you know, the two main themes that we have been focused on and markets have really fixated on are the. the the soft inflation prints. Now we've had a couple of uh, below consensus uh, CPI prints uh, from the US and also the Fed, uh, which is now basically uh, going on a slower pace of hikes uh, as it is getting to uh, the end stages of its hiking cycle. Uh, Outside the US, uh, cyclical conditions have gotten better. Uh, We've seen uh, in Europe, uh, for example, uh, we've been highlighting that growth momentum uh, has been improving. It first neutralized a couple of months ago. It turned outright positive, and data started beating expectations a month ago. Uh, in China uh, and Asia, the data in hand has been quite weak. But of course, the reopening has surprised markets. So there's there's quite a bit been going on. Um, so let's let's unpack some of these issues today, and I, let's let's start with China first. Uh, so Arindam. Uh, what are your impressions of the China reopening uh, and the longevity of this uh, of this theme? And uh, is this uh, is this a game changer for CNY? I
1: hey, mean, yes, uh, certainly it's a huge theme in this part of the world and and globally as well for the spillovers that China has onto to other markets. Uh, in terms of uh, the longevity of this reopening, I certainly think that uh, this is durable. Uh, the shift out of uh, Chinese authorities on zero COVID policy has been abrupt. And um, given that uh, they have uh, decided to abandon most of the uh, COVID 19 restrictions that have been in place for the last two years, it looks unlikely to me that they will uh, walk back um, this reversal and go back to where they were six months or even a month ago. Uh, but having said that, uh, it's pretty clear that uh, once you abruptly open up an economy um, to uh, to these uh, you know, more increased mobility it, without the sort of herd immunity that many Western societies uh, had, without the level of vaccination rates that uh, many parts of DM had, you'll have you know, a case spread or contagion of the scale that we are seeing in China right now. So it's not uh, unthinkable that uh, over the next quarter or two, you could get uh, localized you uh, temporary restrictions uh, just to dampen down the caseload a little bit, but. Uh, and on the whole, it feels like this is an irreversible shift towards living with COVID in the way that the rest of the world um, kind of migrated to a, a few months back. Um, uh, in terms of whether this is a game changer for markets, uh, certainly the huge uh, rallies in risk markets that we've seen and the dollar reversal is, I suspect, partially uh, a result of this, um, do indeed look quite stunning. And... Uh, I know some of this is uh, you know entirely legitimate every time that China growth lifts it has uh, a salutary impact on global growth and you know that in turn tends to dampen the dollar lift risk assets lift commodity prices lift commodity currencies the usual playbook that we've seen uh, during previous China up cycles of the last uh, last decade but having said that uh, I do think that there are certain pockets here that look like they are overrunning a little bit and we have certain biases about you know, which pockets are probably safer to bet on as China reopening plays and others so we are a little you know uncomfortable with the rate at which industrial commodities have have run in the cycle and commodity currencies like Aussie and Rand and Chile have uh, for example uh, raced higher uh, we certainly buy the uh, the services beneficiaries like Thailand for example as, as reopening plays, on China, but uh, this is a very different reopening cycle, which is centered on services and consumption. This is not focused on uh, fiscal stimulus, fixed asset investment, housing revival, etc. And And hence the pattern of this recovery, which has so far been indiscriminate across assets does look a little off to us.
0: Okay, so does this um, then change the way that you're thinking about uh, your bias on CNY? Um, and then, of course, there's the question of how does this actually spill over? What's the best way for uh, for investors who are looking to um, sort of position for this China reopening? What's the best way for them to do that in the
1: region or in FX? Yeah, no, see, um, China reopening will uh, necessarily have some uh, CNY effects. Uh, it's just not clear that those effects are as clean as one-sided as the market makes it out to be, um, you know, just looking at this big uh, down move in dollar CNY from 730 to 695, it would seem like China reopening is, uh, is a clean CNY positive. It is positive in some ways. Uh, there is a, a cyclical lift. It's manifested mostly in the form of equity flows, which have stepped up quite sharply. Uh, if you look at the uh, Northbound Stock Connect data, uh, yet the fact remains that reopening also has some negative balance of payment implications. Uh, more Chinese tourists will uh, go out over the next uh, year. Um, China will import more over the next year. In conjunction with solid exports, um, savings from imports and outbound tourism have been uh, Uh, a key reason why CNY has been strong over the past two years and those debt savings will now weigh on the currency next year. So there's a push and a pull. And in our mind, the case for uh, dollar CNY cleanly lower is not as uh, as, as straightforward. Uh, I think there's a stronger case to be made for a weaker CNY basket because uh, the very balance of payment drags that hold CNY back will likely benefit partner currencies within the basket that benefit from those trade and tourism flows. And as a result, our bias is that uh, the CNY basket should actually weaken as uh, Chinese reopening momentum gathers steam. Uh, In terms of uh, spillover candidates of China reopening uh, on the region, we feel uh, Hybar is the best positioned to um, capture this outbound uh, Chinese tourist dynamic. In 2019, Chinese tourists contributed about 28% of inbound Thai tourism. Um, Chinese tourists also happen to be better quality tourists in that they stay longer, they spend more. And as a result, the the current account surplus effects of that spending on on Thailand is is actually quite a bit pronounced. And uh, this is our number one pick as a spillover play in the region. Uh, As I said earlier, we are not so sure about the industrial spillovers of China reopening onto the likes of Aussie and some of the higher beta commodity currencies in EM like uh, South Africa and the Chilean peso. And that's because we are not entirely certain that uh, a services and consumption-led recovery in China has the same sort of global spillovers as a fixed asset investment or a construction housing-led cycle does.
0: Okay, thanks. Um, thanks a lot for that, Arundham. Now let's turn to Jay um, and what's going on in the US. Uh, obviously a lot of developments in the US in the past week, uh, lots of attention on the soft inflation trend, the FOMC, uh, but also the activity data, I think, uh, you know, which has been softening quite a bit. So Jay, which of these has been the most striking to you um, and, uh, and uh, what do you think is the most relevant for rates markets here?
2: Sure. Thanks, Mira. So I, I think it's telling that if you look at what's happened over the Treasury market this week, despite the somewhat hawkish delivery of the Fed, that U.S. rates have actually ended the week lower. So I think that's telling for sort of what matters right now, um, because certainly the Fed was more hawkish than than we had expected. And I think the the median dot for 2023 was 25 basis points higher than our own forecast. And even the distribution of that dot is I think much more hawkish than we would have expected. In addition, I think there was you know ongoing hawkish um, language in the statement. There was, we thought some risk that the language around ongoing further increases would sort of be taken out of the statement, but it wasn't. And then the chair's own sort of comments during the press conference were, were somewhat hawkish as well. Um, making the point that um, we're not at sufficiently restrictive policy stances and that we need to see ongoing hikes. So that was certainly hawkish, but the markets didn't respond in in U.S. rates, I think in large part because you said it. This week's data flow has been somewhat more um, weak from an activity perspective and benign on inflation. And, you know, looking at the fact that over the course of the week, uh, the PMI is disappointed to the downside and remain sitting below 50, indicative of sort of more, um, you know, Recessionary type levels for growth um, was important for the market. Beyond that, you know the retail sales numbers, um, disappointing to the downside, certainly were um, I think a, a driving factor as well. Though we still think real consumption is tracking about three and a half percent in the fourth quarter. But but I actually think inflation was the most important because we've had two consecutive CPI prints that have surprised to the downside relative to consensus expectations. And you know when the economics team pieces through the details of, of CPI. You know two out of the three sort of main categories that you know we've been identifying and the fed has which is um core goods um shelter and core services ex shelter um you know two of those three are, are really sort of close to unchanged right now and the only one sort of with persistent sequential firmness over the last few months is shelter and we know that shelter tends to lag and should show up um in the underlying trend in inflation you know into next year so the fact that in in particular core services ex shelter has been sort of flat this month and relatively benign last month i think is what drove the treasury market to lower yields this week despite the fact that the fed and other central banks were 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 hawkish no doubt um but but away from the fundamentals i also think that there's something that's technical going on in the market too and we've been flagging this in our research that as rates have moved lower um the the sort of unwind of the bearish duration trade that we have seen throughout this year sort of occurred. Um, But as rates have moved lower over the last month or so, we've seen that build back up. And our Treasury client surveys sitting at its most bearish levels as of the beginning of September. And we've seen sort of similar dynamics emerge in the CFTC's weekly commitment of trader data as well. And most of this data is captured prior to the Fed meeting. But I wonder the muted reaction that we had to the Fed on Wednesday, whether this was an opportunity for investors who were residually still bearish um, on duration and positioned for higher yields to unwind those trades, simply because I think you know we've actually now gotten the rearview mirror the last meaningful trading days of 2022, with the Fed decision on Wednesday, the Bank of England and the ECB on Thursday, um, so that this has been a reason for investors to reduce risk, um, particularly knowing that we've got some sort of very dicey liquidity dynamics ahead of us as well, so. I think, as everyone is aware, Treasury market liquidity has been low this year, which has been related to high macro policy uncertainty and high vol. But we're also at a seasonal point of the year where it tends to decline pretty sharply between Thanksgiving and year-end here in the U.S. With the biggest part of that decline coming in the last 10 days of the year, which is where we are right now. So I, I wonder, you know, certainly, like while the, the the underlying data pointed to a moderation in inflation and weaker growth, which would be supportive of lower yields, whether there's been an additional layer that has come from here from the technical side of the equation given what we saw in in technical dynamics heading into this week as well.
0: Okay so uh, the interesting thing here is that 10-year yields have already uh, collapsed uh, to your 340 target. Um, What is the outlook now going forward uh, now that we here? Is there any changes in views?
2: Yeah, I think tactically, we're actually setting ourselves up a little bit bearishly here for a number of reasons. You know, First, I think the move that we've had from the local peak in yields just a few weeks ago is very much consistent with what you'd expect for when the Fed actually goes on hold. But if our modal forecast comes to fruition and we see uh, 50 basis points more of hikes between now and the March meeting, that rally would be pretty early compared to anything that we've seen in a prior tightening cycle. So, that would sort of suggest that we've done a lot of the Fed on hold trade here, um, which is sort of reflected in our forecast as we move into 2023. But also, I think you can kind of see it through the lens of the valuation framework as well, where um, 10-year yields here sort of hovering right around 350 um, and a, a little bit below actually seem to be about 15 to 20 basis points too low after we sort of adjust for what we think are the most... Highly significant drivers of treasury yields. And those drivers that we point to are the market's medium, well, short term Fed policy expectations, as well as medium term growth and inflation expectations. And this divergence has sort of become more apparent over the last few weeks. So, with the Fed on hold trade being done somewhat early, with valuations looking somewhat rich, you know, I I actually do think that the tactical setup is turning. Somewhat more bearish here, um, just from a you know pure mean reversion factor. But also beyond that, the fact that the other DM central banks, and in particular the ECB surprised to the upside this week, that's meaningful for u s. rates as well because I think on a partial basis, we have found that given the global nature of inflation and central bank policy tightening this year, that treasury yields have displayed a high degree of sensitivity to sort of what's happening elsewhere in the world. And they've decoupled a bit from, from bonds lately and just sort of hearing our colleagues in Euro in rate strategy talk about the near-term bearish follow-through risks and bonds, if that's the case over the balance of the year, then that would sort of risk higher treasury yields as well, which is why I think over the very near term, we think that there's tactical scope for yields to move a bit higher, um, even though you know it's very obvious, as we talked about, that the activity and inflation data are supportive of lower yields overall. So, Mira, you know, now sort of we've covered sort of what's happened in U.S. rates this week and, you know, what we think the path is ahead over the very, very near term. Um, Maybe if I can just turn it back to you to talk about FX. Um, You spent some time talking with Arindam about China and the U.S. What do you think that all means for the for the broad dollar as we look ahead?
0: Uh, Sure, Jay. So in the year ahead outlook, uh, we had laid out a case for a defensive view of the world in 2023. Um, and we highlighted why we thought the relief uh, sell-off in the dollar purely on the basis of Fed pause uh, was expected to be actually quite short-lived and fragile. Uh, the idea there was that if you have uh, the US dollar a defensive currency yielding 5% and you combine that with quantitative tightening from GFOS central banks, that's the largest uh, post GFC, uh, you know, that should basically make the bar for uh, investors to go down in credit, down in risk uh, quite a bit higher. Uh, so uh, the baseline was for modest uh, dollar strength, uh, about two to five percent over the course of 2023. But uh, importantly, with more differentiation, you know, focusing more on sort of the more vulnerable parts of the uh, universe, such as uh, cyclical high beta uh, currencies. Now, um, obviously, it's um, you know always uh, important to benchmark any sort of year ahead vision uh, with the. Uh, with uh, you know the more real time signals you have in hand, and the one thing we had been flagging for the dollar even a month ago um, was that the risks had uh, had uh, basically been uh, turning uh, more neutral from being quite bullish on the dollar. Uh, the key thing that we were pointing to in that regard was that growth momentum outside the U.S. and particular Europe uh, had started neutralizing from highly negative levels uh, a couple months ago. Uh, to actually turning outright positive uh, about a month ago. So our growth models had actually turned on the dollar, uh, neutralized first and slightly bearish. Um, and of course, uh, what's happened in the past month as condition as, as, um, as the year has gone on is that this was ident- uh, it, this uh, dynamic was quite intensified. It was almost a perfect storm really because uh, the China reopening, uh, as Adam said, was a lot quicker, a lot more abrupt uh, and earlier than expected. Uh, you also had, uh, uh, on top of that, for example, the European data continued to surprise to the upside. For example, you had the PMIs today once again, actually beat expectations, uh, putting some upside risk to the growth forecast there. And then, on top of that, of course, on the US side of the equation, you had the two back to back soft inflation prints and a slower pace from the Fed. So, all in all, look, a pretty perfect storm uh, to interrupt some of the momentum trades that we saw all of 2022. Now, where do we stand currently? Look, we're still, um, you know, all of our um, dollar uh, longs, we, you know, the, the dollar sort of bullish exposure, uh, we had been expressing through fairly, fairly cautious uh, expressions of the view through options and such. Uh, and we had done that about uh, a month ago, just to sort of uh, limit, uh, limit any sort of uh, damage from uh, this kind of uh, flux on growth. Uh, Where do we stand currently? We're not chasing this dollar weakness versus high beta currencies in particular. Uh, You know, the key issue and the flying the ointment for us is U.S. recession risks. And I think uh, that that is really the key issue here. Yes, you're seeing an abatement in, um, in inflation. That should be good. The Fed's coming to a pause. That's usually good. Should be a relief. The problem is that U.S. data on the activity side is rolling over quite substantially and uh, the odds, I think, of U.S. recession risks stay quite high. Uh, So overall, um, you know, really think that the cyclical uh, high beta currency space uh, actually remains quite vulnerable and that means that the dollar... Uh, is really going to struggle to uh, continue to weaken from here quite substantially. Uh, if we do have evidence of a soft landing in the U.S., absolutely, one could, uh, one could sort of uh, suggest uh, that, uh, that, you know, the dollar should eventually weaken. But I think the jury is still out um, on that one. So I would say overall, uh, that's a long winded way of saying that we are less convicted near term on the dollar direction focus instead is really on other themes. So we do like uh, sort of idiosyncratic ways to, for example, get exposure to US uh, recession risks, uh, short the Canadian dollar is, uh, for example, uh, uh, you know one, one theme to consider there. Uh, in addition, another theme we like is a slower pace of Fed hikes combined with the BOJ pivot, uh, which basically suggests a bullish stance on the Japanese yen. Uh, we've been recommending that, it was a major theme for us um, in the year ahead outlook as well. Uh, underweights and vulnerable, quite vulnerable, high beta currencies. I would put sterling and New Zealand in that bucket. Uh, we still, uh, you know, still bearish on those currencies. And then finally, I would say uh, the underperformance of the euro block versus the Swiss franc. Uh, things like the euro, um, uh, you know, stocky, knocky, uh all have their individual vulnerabilities at the moment, and we do like uh, expressing those versus the Swiss franc. Uh, since that's one place where the domestic policy from the S&B actually limits how much the Swiss franc can weaken. So it's basically a more dollar neutral way of sort of expressing a bearish regional view for us.
2: Thanks for that, Mira. And now, you know, there's one more question for you. Um, I think we know this week wasn't just about the Fed, that there were several other central bank meetings that we've had over the course of the second half of the week. Um, What do you think the main takeaways are for FX from them? And you've talked about them, just a tiny bit. Could you you get into a bit more detail?
0: Sure. So I'd say um, the biggest surprise was from the ECB uh, for markets. They were... Uh, they were uh, more hawkish than expected, went so far as to say that market wasn't appropriately priced to the extent of hikes they could deliver. And, um, you know, I, I personally think that, um, you know, the fact that they were hawkish actually, uh, you know, should have been queued up by the fact that actually the the recession um, that, and the growth drawdown that we're seeing in Q4 is, that hasn't actually been as deep as expected. Um, so, um, you know, that was sort of added, um, you know, added in particular, for euro to make uh, a new local high uh, I would say that you know does it change our sort of regional uh, bearish euro uh, view not really uh, I, I just think that uh, any bearish uh, euro views are much better expressed through euro Swiss than than uh, the euro dollar, just to keep the US uh, side of the equation, out you know, the US uh, sort of out of the equation here. And you can see that euro dollar has bounced 10 cents, but euro Swiss has actually been relatively resilient. So, uh, you know, still still like um, uh, the bearish euro view, I would say, uh, but Express versus uh, Swiss, uh, the Swiss franc. The SMB, uh, they matched the ECB, and there was no real change in the intervention language. I think, um you know, uh, as I said, uh, we like we like the Swiss franc. Um, and uh, even though the s and may not be looking for a substantial, more uh, currency strength, they're certainly uh, not going to be looking for currency weakness, and they we think will push back against that. Um, so from that point of view, there is a bit of an asymmetry on the Swiss franc here. Uh, Norges Bank and BOE. Uh, look, the Norges Bank looks like it's close to being done. Um, it's not necessarily, uh, the Norges Bank by itself hasn't really been a game changer for Nokia for a while. Um, and now that it's actually close to being done, uh, we think that uh, Nokia can sort of uh, more conclusively trade in line with the uh, risk sentiment. And uh, you know, we are, uh, we are, um, we are bearish on, on Noki particularly versus Euro on a policy divergent story. And I would I would also say the Bank of England, they did have a hawkish bias, but like with some of these other high beta currencies that are vulnerable, uh, you know, a hawkish bias from the central bank is certainly not enough, we think, uh, for the currency, and we continue to be bearish on sterling as well. Um, so I'll stop there. Uh, for any further information on any of the views uh, discussed on this podcast, uh, please take a look at jpnm.com. Uh, this communication is provided for information purposes only. Uh, please refer to J.P. Morgan research reports uh, related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. Uh, two thousand twenty-two J.P. Morgan Chase and Company. All rights reserved. Uh, this episode was recorded on sixteenth December two thousand twenty-two.